It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember who you are and whose you are. Baptism washes and cleanses us from our sins and transforms us from being the children of wrath into the children of God. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Identity, a podcast that explores Christian identity and doctrine with a Reformed bent. I'm your host, Nathan Longfield. Today is Monday, September 21st. Today is the second interview episode, as we talk to Dr. Steve McMullen about how his identity as a child of God impacts his work and life. We'll be back after a quick break to talk to Steve. We're now joined by Dr. Stephen McMullen, who lives out his identity as a child of God as, among other things, a professor of economics at Hope College, a Christian liberal arts college in Holland, Michigan. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nathan, for having me. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. My pleasure. Uh, so you have a couple variety of areas of research and study relating to economics, more or less. Um, so education policy, ethics and theology in econ, and sort of an animal environmental ethics approach. Um, so each of those is a large topic. So let's just focus on the first one to start. So can you talk a little bit about the looking at education, um, what exactly you're studying within that, and then sort of how your faith has led you to engage that, how your identity as a child of God impacts that engagement? Sure, thank you. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a give you a brief caveat here, and that is that uh, as as a Christian, I've always been uh, thinking theologically a little bit because that's what we do, uh, even when we don't realize we're doing it. And over the course of my career, I've I've gotten into uh, lots of different topics uh, of Christians trying to to think about the kinds of issues that I'm exploring as an economist. And I think uh, about the time I was uh, a few years into my my work as a faculty member, well after I'd gotten into the research, I kind of developed a, a kind of a broader sort of Christian way of thinking about everything that I did. So I'm going to give you that, but let's not pretend that it isn't um, isn't coming after the fact. So uh, this is this is a way of saying there's kind of two ways of telling the story of why I do what I do. One mm. is that I stumbled into work that was really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I went to graduate school and I learned that I could investigate things like education policy, which seemed really important using the tools they gave me. And I jumped into it, you know, and the other way of telling it is that education is in our modern economy, essential to the way people support themselves and their families. And I think has a kind of central economic, but also ethical um, role in the structure of the economy. And, and for, for that reason, as a Christian, I also care about it. So, so what do I do in education policy? Uh, turns out economists have for quite some time been at the cutting edge of what we call policy evaluation. So I don't study usually, uh, although my most recent book is the exception here, usually I, I haven't studied what's going on in the classroom or what makes a great teacher. Uh, or what kinds of things we should be teaching kids so that they learn how to read better. 
Uh, instead, what economists are good at doing is taking administrative data and asking, um, did this big policy change in this school district have a long-term uh, benefit uh, or not for the students in terms of test scores or graduation rates? Right? So it's the empirical number crunching stuff that we economists are generally good at. And that's what I was trained to do as a graduate student. So my, if you were to, if you were to look at my dissertation, it's a lot of math and it's exploring whether or not different education policies work. Okay. So I did a fair bit of that. Um, and, and then more recently, I got into a big, uh, big project looking at the role of technology in Christian schools. And so that's okay. the most recent book that I came out with. It's co-authored with three education professors. Uh, and that one, we really are digging into the classrooms, doing a bunch of focus groups and interviews and a whole bunch of stuff I was never trained to do. Fortunately, my co-authors were. Uh, but we were asking a very different but also really important question, uh, which is what happens in the classroom and the school culture uh, and the way teachers and students interact when we hand everybody a laptop, mm. uh, which is what schools have been doing now for about a decade. Okay. Now, um, so, so that's, that's, that's what I've been doing. Uh, and and I, could, I could talk in greater depth about the, the different things, but, but we'll leave it there for now. So you kind of mentioned the theology is always there yeah. in a sentence as Christians and it's under the yeah, it's an undertone. Um, are there certain ways in this that you found it's kind of rose to the surface or just kind of as appropriate sometimes remained a underlying sort of worldview as you enter into the study? It, I think it's risen to the surface, particularly in the way I think about the the big challenge facing us with the education system in the US. And I think the easiest way to explain that in theological terms is to go to the Old Testament hmm. and to look at the, the structure of the economy of the ancient Israelites. Hmm. Now I say that because if you, if you dig into the, the Old Testament law, there's a whole bunch of provisions in there, which are really interesting to economists, probably interesting to everybody, but particularly interesting to economists because they look like an agrarian safety net of sorts, right? The laws requiring uh, farmers to leave some grain on the field, you know, you go only go over your field once so that people who are impoverished can follow after you and glean uh, and pick up the leftover grain. Um, the, the rules that very famously uh, around debt relief, right? And there's mm -hmm. no permanent indentured servitude and you have an obligation to give loans and to hire your neighbor. Um, and then of course, the, the famous returning of land after 50 years. So all of these things, there's, there's kind of an underlying structure to them. And it's that everybody should have the ability to support themselves and their family, right? That everybody should, um, that the, the economy should be structured in such a way that people uh, have the ability to take care of themselves and support themselves. And if you want to put it in kind of in the language of the Old Testament, I think it'd be something like everybody should have the economic resources they need to do the things God has asked them to do, hmm. to obey the law. All right. So, so what do we do with that? I think that's important because if we, if we run the clock forward uh, to our modern economy, it's not important that everybody have access to land or sheep. That just isn't the structure of our economy anymore, right? Mm -hmm. um, less than 1% of the people in the US are farmers. But to have access to the modern economy, you do need education. Mm -hmm. 
All right, so then you look at the education structure and you have a whole bunch of people who are not being well served by our education system. And immediately the, 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 the first order concern becomes what can we do to restructure our education system? What can we change so that everybody is given the access to life, access to the economy so that they can have um, the lives, so they can lead the lives in which they're able to do those things that God has, has called them to do. Hmm. Yeah. So that, that gives you the kind of motivation at least. And then, and then, you know, achievement gaps, right? Dropout rates, right? Our kids learning to read. Then you get into the nitty gritty. These are the things I think that we focus on uh, in education policy. And I think there's a really good mm-hmm. reason for it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so kind of continuing, I guess, on the agrarian theme we just picked mm-hmm. up, you also uh, do things on environmental and animal ethics again not necessarily what someone thinks of when they think of what an economist studies. Um, but yeah, can you speak to how you got into that? What, what goes into that and sort of, was that because of a, sort of the Old Testament doctrinal thing got you into that originally or did you get into the ethics and theology and ethics are inexplicably married for Christians so it had to carry along? You know, it, it really does. And I cannot claim that I got into education policy because I read the Old Testament, <laughs> right? the, the order was wrong, right? I, I started reading the Old Testament and sort of discovered this larger story, I think, after I was already deep into the number crunching. But with the animal ethics, it really did. I, I can say fairly confidently that I would not be interested in animal ethics. I wouldn't be a vegan, for instance, um, although I'm not, I'm not a perfect vegan, but I do my best to try to eat a vegan diet and not wear leather and these kinds of things. Uh, neither of those would be true if I were not a Christian, right? And the, and the, the logic goes something like this. Um, I started paying attention to the, the doctrine of creation and the kinds of, of sort of basic commitments that I think we should have as Christians. And, and, it, and, and the first thing that struck me was that, that God probably values the world more than we do, right? Um, and, and that's not hard to get out of Genesis, right? You, the rest of the Bible too, but, but particularly Genesis. Like you have to be trying not to catch that um, if you read Genesis. And then you, you look at the way we, we do some things uh, in the environment. Uh, but then I, I had some friends that were particularly interested in animal ethics issues. And, um, and, I, and I heard a lecture by, um, by a Christian theologian and I'm blanking on the actual lecture it was now because it was a long time ago, but I could go dig it up. And he was talking about the way animals were treated in the Old Testament and there's a whole sacrificial system. And just as a side note, he said something like, like, you know, even within the sacrificial system, uh, the ancient Israelites treated animals a lot better than we do on farms today. And it struck me that, uh, that there, was, there was a basic disconnect ethical disconnect, I think, between a simple uh, Christian view of creation and the purely instrumental view of animals that undergirds uh, industrial animal agriculture. Now, that was not a happy thing for me. That was not a happy conclusion to come to because, like, I was, you know, marinating my own corned beef at the time in the fridge and and these kinds of things. And I, and I wasn't, I wasn't, tempted toward a vegetarian diet or something of that sort. But that was my first, uh, my first conclusion is, okay, you know, 
I think the thing I need to do as, as, as someone who, who thinks I should live as an economist in a way that pushes the economy toward the world that I want it to be, I think I got to eat less meat. And that just that just starts you starts you down a road. Once I start asking these questions, you start reading books, and um, and pretty soon you realize that there are no economists writing about animal ethics. I mean, it turns out there's three of us, but you know, it, um, it's not a very big group, and and so that means that there's there's an opening. And as a scholar, I everyone I think who's a who's a scholar for very long realizes that there's a certain kind of opportunism there, mm. like you. You can't plan your scholarly career on a 10-year plan very easily. What you do is you say, I'm interested in these things, and then questions come up, opportunities come up, your colleagues come to you with neat ideas, and some ideas work and some don't. And this is one that just works. So I wrote, I ended up writing a book about animals and the economy. And it's not a Christian book, but with most, as with a lot of my work, it's the goal was to take a, a pretty simple theology and ask, what would economics and ethics look like in in non-christian terms if i if i use this theology as my starting point so i start with a basic theology of stewardship a theology that says god created the world uh, and loves all of it and he put us on earth with a job to do and that is to to communicate his love and to show his love to all of creation um okay how do we work that out in economics and it's not immediately obvious but you know that's the book Right. So, so when you say the book's not a Christian book, do you just simply mean like you're not using a biblical argument, not the yeah, undergirding kind of is, but the explicit argument? A non-Christian could pick it up and all the arguments would hold without a biblical basis. Yeah, exactly. Okay. There's no yeah. explicit theological or biblical work in the, in the text. I do cite some Christians, right? And mm -hmm. that's the extent to which uh, you might get a clue that there's some theology <laughs> in the background. Um, but I didn't, I, it was published in a animal ethics series that actually happens to be edited by uh, a theologian, hmm. but there's no explicit religious sort of motivation for the, for the series. Um, and I think other than one or two sentences, you wouldn't, you wouldn't find it in the book. And I'm actually really comfortable in that space. I don't mind having the theology be in the background for a certain part of my scholarly work, uh, because particularly if the theology doesn't um, or the or the biblical work if I'm not actually doing anything new or creative there mm. I, I really don't want to do simplistic theology I'd rather I'd rather leave it out than do a, do a poor job I feel like there's a high bar when <laughs> you start talking about Jesus and so um, so that's that's been my approach in, in a fair bit of the work mm -hmm. I think that also too shows a certain recognition the argument can be made without that and so that can reach an audience that if it is really narrowly put in theological terms may not even reach the entire broad christian audience let alone a larger audience in general which not only does that impact book sales but impacts who you can impact so well and even the christian world is just so <laughs> segmented mm -hmm. so if i were to make a theological argument using something from the doctrine of creation not only would I only be talking to Christians, I would only be talking to Christians who want to take the Bible seriously on those particular terms. And then inevitably they'd say, hey, this argument sounds pretty reformed. And so then I'd immediately lose like another two thirds of the, of the church. And, you know, that's an indictment probably of, of, you know, the sociology of Christianity in the modern world. But 
Uh, but the point is, is that we Christians like to talk to very small communities, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unless you're anti-right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I guess moving to the third area of study that actually has economics in the title, um, <laughs> looking at ethics and theology within economics. All the words are there. They're I guess all. we've hit it. Um, so, yeah, kind of speak to what that is broadly, I'm sure ethics and econ, I mean, that's a broad field, but yeah, yeah what does that look like? Uh, so it's, I mean, it's not going to shock you given the conversation we've just had that I am interested in, uh, in the things that people have written about um, kind of theological approaches to thinking about the economy um, and also things economists have written uh, about Christian ethics there's a whole sort of long-standing kind of dialogue coming from multiple quarters about um, about economic policy, about uh, ethics in economic life, you might say, um, about capitalism and socialism, um, about the role of government, of course. And, and this conversation is not clean or easy because theologians have one language one set of presuppositions, a set of assumptions. Bible scholars, a very different one, but also right there in this conversation as well. Mm-hmm. And then economists are coming from a very different place. Uh, political theorists, a very different place. And we're all kind of talking to each other, but often talking past one another. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I'm in this conversation because I'm, I'm really interested. I take these questions really seriously. I think it's important for economists and theologians to be able to talk to each other because I think it's important for, for economists to be able to learn from the, the best the church has to offer. Sorry, we got some movement here. The, um, but, it's, but it's really hard. So I, when I've delved into the broad area of what I call theology and ethics and economics, it's, it's to engage some specific debates here. So I've, I've written about the, the radical orthodoxy um, folks, um, which is, which is a, a kind of uh, a radical school of theologians and philosophers, kind of radical, um, often in England, but there's a few in the United States. They, they tend to be very critical of modern social science. Um, so I'm thinking here of people like John Milbank and Pickstock and Graham Ward and, and Stephen Long um, has kind of delved into that, that as well. And, uh, and so their criticisms of social science include a really substantial criticism of the way economists do their job, um, a, a pretty substantial criticism of market economies. And it's weird philosophical stuff, mm. right? The, the gap between the way they talk about the economy and the way economists talk about the economy <laughs> is pretty big. So I've tried to bridge that gap a little bit by reading charitably uh, these critics and, and do some translation work. Hmm. Um, and that project is, uh, is ongoing in, in the broadest form and that I like to read theologians and, and these kinds of things and then address particular issues. I've also gotten into just um, economic ethics in general. I've written about technology. Right now I'm working on a book about uh, redistribution hmm. and uh, egalitarianism. It's a debate with a political philosopher who's very conservative and we're, we're going back and forth. Hmm. And so I've had to delve into the kind of some of the standard arguments about uh, distributive justice. So all of this stuff is, 
uh, is a, it's a broad area of interest. I just like reading philosophers and theologians mm -hmm. and then speaking as an economist into the, into the debate. Yeah, I, I'm curious, maybe not even necessarily in your research, but in that field, how much is there a dialogue around sort of, sort of the economic vision you mentioned earlier of the Old Testament and how that can, should, question mark, be in fleshed now in a different culture, different society, different structuring. Um, like, I guess sort of, should that play forward? Should it sort of play forward? How, how is that sort of engaged there? Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's a live debate, right? And unfortunately, um, the debate falls kind of along the lines that you would expect, which is that folks who are relatively progressive tend to read the Bible and see uh, a strong justification for a lot of redistribution and a large state and um, a lot of suspicion for, uh, for market economies. And those who are very conservative uh, tend to read the same scriptures and find a whole lot of support for strong property rights and a small government <laughs> and um, you know entrepreneurship and uh, and of course that's probably what we would expect. Um, I do think that that it's that's important to have these conversations about what we can learn from Scripture about what God wants for the world and how can we mm. translate that into the modern era. But let's not pretend it isn't a really difficult conversation <laughs> because that kind of translation is just so hard. Yeah. Um, you have the you, you have some folks wanting to take Old Testament law and just sort of reinstate it, you know, mm. stoning included in the modern world on one extreme. And then you have others that that pull sort of a, a general concern for justice out of the Old Testament, um, you know, translate it through roles and then just go um, wholesale in that direction. And, uh, and I think all these folks have something to offer. And I don't have a great way of adjudicating these except to say that, you know, my default is to take scripture seriously um, and, and to assume that um, all of these different readings probably have something important to add mm -hmm. and, then, and then do my best to try, to try to pull something together that's coherent. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, one, one last note there real quick before I... I let this um, stream of consciousness end for a second. <laughs> and that is that um, I think it's my own approach has been to, to try to pull, which is not unique at all, but the, the approach that I find most convincing is to read the Bible for some ethic, broad ethical principles mm -hmm. for, for a sense of what God's priorities are for the world. And then, and then bring those to the modern era, as opposed to, being too committed to a particular economic structure or a particular kind of government um, or, or something of the sort. Mm. Uh, just because, you know, there's a lot of time and a lot of technological history between then and now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Uh, I, I guess to pivot again, um, as a professor, you do research. You're also at a school that values teaching um, and a school that wants you to teach as a Christian. Um, so I'm, curious what um, your faith, how it impacts your pedagogy, how it impacts how you interact with students, faculty. Um, I mean, cards on the table. I'm an alum of this institution, so I love this place. But for you, what does it look like um, to step into that sort of teaching role, which is in higher ed relatively unique? It is. And it's one of the places that I love 
uh, teaching at Hope College. It, it is a phenomenal institution and it's a, it's a wonderful place to be, particularly the kind of scholar that I am. Mm-hmm. Right? There aren't a lot of spaces where I can do the weird stuff that we have just talked about. Yeah. And people think it's neat. But at Hope College, they do. And, and it, it really does um, allow for a lot of great conversations uh, for, with my students. Um, I think there's two ways to answer, answer this. So let me try both. First, you might ask, uh, does the, the content that I teach differ? Because I'm at a mm-hmm. place like Hope, because I'm a Christian. And then the second way of asking this is, uh, do my priorities or methods as a teacher differ? And I think both are true, but both do differ because of my Christian faith. Although there's always a caveat, I've never not been a Christian teacher. <laughs> so, and I'm not reflective enough as a person to be able to sort of dig into myself and figure out what I would be without Christianity and how my mm. teaching. But, you know, all that aside, I think there's, I think we can answer both of these. First, in terms of content, I I think it's really important to have students graduate from college, being able to think as Christians in all parts of their life, mm-hmm. which is to say that I don't think that my job is just to communicate economics as it appears in the textbook. I also want to give my students opportunities and to ask them to, to think Christianly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means um, integrating theology in the way I talk about things in the classroom at times. Uh, not a ton, because we have, we have theology professors that are way better at that. Um, but there is some of that. But also just to, just to regularly point out places where there's really rich intersections between what we're doing in economics and what our commitments might be as Christians and the work that Christians have done uh, across history. And in pointing out those connections, I want to help students always think of their education in a kind of integrated way. And so that, that shows up in the content a little bit. Um, I think the, the way I teach does end up being a little bit different as well, uh, at least I hope. Uh, one way might be that I, I don't think I'm allowed as a Christian to look at my students figure out which ones are the most promising and focus on them. Mm-hmm. Now that wouldn't be good teaching anyway, <laughs> but I think it would also be, um, it would be to, to not live into my calling as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, because every one of my students, even those that are like marginally prepared for college, and there's always a couple, right? All of my students have a calling from God uh, to live in the world and, and to do a whole bunch of wonderful things. And it's my job to prepare them and to, and to help them figure out what their calling is and to do all of the hard work and sometimes just practice doing the hard work that's necessary for them to be able to be prepared to do that. Uh, so that means uh, hopefully when I'm living into my calling best, it means I'm giving lots of attention to those students at the margins. Um, and, I, and I mean that primarily academically, but it could also mean socially. Um, it also means designing classes that aren't just useful for those who are um, going to be academically gifted or who are, who are going to do lots and lots of economics. But it means 
thinking about how can I craft a class that really is going to be helpful for, for those who are going to struggle to get the, um, the B minus mm. or the C plus. And I don't think I do all of those things really well, but I, but those are priorities mm-hmm. and, and I'd want uh, to be able to do them well. Yeah. Is there a, I guess, way you kind of think about integrating sort of the theological ethical realm into the classroom to encourage this critical thinking on the part of the student? Um, I mean, it may just sort of come up in different ways, but is there a methodology or mindset you take to that um, to kind of stir that thought for people as you engage some of the, you know, just functioning of an economy and the mechanics of that and the theory of that, but then also enter in that sort of ethical conversation. Yeah. You know, one of the biggest difficulties here (laughs) is that economists have this, uh, we have this kind of professional vision of, of who we are and what we do that is supposed to be ethically neutral or not ethically neutral as in it doesn't matter if we are ethical, uh, but that we as economists are, are technicians. We, we, we figure out what's going on in the economy. We kind of try to describe it accurately. And then we hand that description of the economy and economic behavior over to the people that actually make decisions. And it's, it's that those people have the job, policymakers, uh, whatnot. They have the job of bringing some set of values or priorities or some vision of what justice is, and, and they get to make those hard choices. So we economists have tried to separate ourselves from the ide- big ideological projects that have animated uh, the big debates, and we separate ourselves from those big ideological debates professionally by sticking to what we hope is a real neutral objective methodology. Now, when that's your vision for what economics is, then in that, that, that comes into the classroom in an economics curriculum uh, across lots and lots of different textbooks and the basic ethos of the discipline. Uh, it comes across as a curriculum that does not engage the big ethical questions uh, in any substantive way, except to try to inform those big debates when we can with empirical um, economic studies or, or some basic economic theory. Uh, now, I, I think that project is valuable. I think it's actually really important for economists not to be totally captured by ideological movements, right? We have to be able to have conversation about the economy that isn't just who do we want to win the next election. Mm. So, so I accept that as a valuable intellectual move. But that means that when we want to start thinking theologically, there is this natural barrier, right? Uh, in philosophical terms, we're positivists, uh, mm. economists, and, and you have to get beyond uh, positivist, meaning that we think all of the interesting things econo- that we economists can observe anyway um, are, are empirical, right? So everything we, we can learn about the world, we learn through empirical observation and, um, and theorizing, and that's, that's the way we come to knowledge. Now, um, so what's the challenge then? Uh, if we want to talk about uh, something like the environment, then it wouldn't be the economist's job to get students to try to care more about the about um, the plight of endangered species or something of the sort. In fact, the job of the economist would be to be totally neutral on whether or not we should care about endangered species, but maybe to to talk about what kinds of policies would be effective or ineffective if you wanted to to care about these kinds of things. 
Now, I think that that move is important, as I said, but it has a huge obvious weakness. And that is, it's really easy to ignore moral problems, right? It, it kind of lends to a kind of moral apathy that we already, uh, as human beings, sometimes fall into very naturally. Mm. So I recognize that as a big weakness and a big glaring hole in the way economists view the world. And I try to, um, I try to lead my students out of that trap. And that's, that's I think, the, the biggest thing I can do as a teacher is to point out that this kind of objectivity has this pitfall. And the pitfall is you can find yourself doing all of this technical analysis and realize at the end that you've ignored the elephant in the room, that the real mm-hmm. question was a question of justice, not a question of efficiency. Mm-hmm. And, and we were asking the wrong questions. Yeah. Yeah. Or we were ignoring them. And um, so that, that I think that is, that's the main way in, in the economics classroom, at least, we can open the door for these kinds of discussions while still hopefully holding on to the kind of the academic rigor um, that, we, that we want. Yeah, great. Uh, if the, any of our listeners want to read some of the books you mentioned or articles, um, I'll link to them in the show notes, but is there anything you wanted to mention uh, before we wrap up? You know, things I've written have tended to be very academic. So if you're interested in sort of the academic conversations about economics and theology or something of the sort, um, you can find all these things. I have a website. It's stephenmcmullen.com. It, it's hard to miss. It's got a giant, you know, my face is just like, you know, really big. <laughs> load up the webpage. So, you know, that's me when you get there. Um, the, the most recent book that I've written is more accessible. It's actually written thinking that school administrators or teachers would want to have a book that they could use to try to think about the role of technology, particularly in Christian schools. That one just came out from Erdman's Press, um, and it's, it's called Digital Life Together, The Challenge of Technology for Christian Schools. Uh, so that's probably the most one of the more accessible things that I've written um, but everything that I'm involved with shows up one way or another on, on my website. Um, and then I'm active blogging for the Christian Scholars Review and, um, and I post on Facebook. And that's, and then you could email me. Great. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. Hey, it's a real pleasure. Good to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to our second interview episode. You can find a link to Steve's website and his work in the show notes. Please follow us on Twitter at IdentityPod or follow me at Nathan Longfield and rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. We'll be back soon for our next Doctrine episode. Please join us then and feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or email me at IdentityPod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Grace and peace.